Welcome to New Jersey Tech Meetup, the podcast. Each episode, we bring you a huge amount of value from past keynotes at our events, fireside chats, and much, much more. Tune in to hear from entrepreneurs such as Gary Vaynerchuk, James Altucher, and your host, Aaron Price. We hope you enjoyed today's episode, and we can't wait to share more episodes with you in the future. Hey. Hi. How you doing? I'm good. How are you? Thanks for inviting me. Well, nice projection. By the way, thank you. By the way, um, I like what you did with the high five. I was actually thinking um, everybody needed to stand up. One of the things we started doing in our fund is something called a Pomodoro, which, by the way, I totally recommend everybody do. It's basically a 25-minute clock. And what we found was that people could only pay attention for about 25 minutes uh, because we make everybody close their laptop during a meeting or put their phone down or turn their watch off or their embedded chip, turn it all off. And then after 25 minutes, you can check it or you can do two Pomodoros. But I I found this to be like very, uh, you know, productive in the office so that you don't have these meetings. So I think it was great that you got everybody to stand up. You know, one of the things that I think it was Michael taught me was that when people do something physical with their bodies at an event, there's some percentage, yeah. I forget how much. Right. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. Now yeah. you're going to remember this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. This is a much more memorable experience. Anyway. So to Pomodoros. If yeah. you take nothing from today, there's do a Pomodoro. And, and, then, and it takes you, for people who don't believe this idea about trying to do two things at once and focus, on average it takes 15 minutes for your brain to switch gears and ramp back up to whatever it was you were trying to think about. So you lose a lot of time if you don't do stuff like that. I'm a big believer. What, what were we talking about? <laughs> I don't know. I was checking my phone. So... <laughs> Let's talk about Brontus, you, your founding experience, or one of them. You've had a few. Um, sure. Tell us what the inspiration was for that idea and what the idea itself was for those who aren't aware. Okay, so we'll go background sort of out of order. Yeah. Um, so uh, Brontus was really – so I was a dot-com refugee, uh, which, you know, I, I sort of post-bubble uh, bursting in 2000, 2000 uh, got to business school. And I went to business school when it was sort of back to banking, back to consulting. Nobody wanted to be in entrepreneurship. I, I literally had no friends because people were like, what, what, what do you do? You want to do a startup? Uh, this is in 2001. And I met a small group of folks that were entrepreneurial out of 800. It was like six or seven of them. One of them happened to be Chris Dixon. Uh, two of them were my partners now, Eric and Dave. Um, but we were really um, unique uh, in business school because we didn't want to, you know, become a consultant or a uh, banker or something. And so um, we we went around a whiteboard and started brainstorming different ideas. And the idea that I came up with with my partner was uh, to validate credit card receipts that it was actually the person signing. So there's this cool technology that was out that would validate us as you know your signature. Um, and anyway, so that was our idea. So like good, dutiful MBAs who were liberal arts majors uh, and had no idea how to code, we went to MIT because we figured there were a lot of smart engineers there. Um, we started literally going around the halls, like, you know, tr- trying to walk around and recruit engineers. So one night we go to this, not dissimilar from this, a mixer. There, I, it wasn't pizza. There was like Thai food, but it was basically a mixer, and everybody had a name tag. One said like there were different colors. Like I'm looking for a partner. Uh, I, I'm a technologist looking for uh, an opportunity. I'm a business person, and um, so we wore the business uh, ones. And so there was a guy in the corner, and he had like kind of frumpy hair, and he had his backpack. And I'm like, looks like a good, nice little undergrad. Probably he looks geeky enough. He's probably a good computer scientist or something. So we walk over there, and he's very awkward and, you know, Thai food, like, hanging on his cheek, you know, kind of thing. And uh, we start talking to him, and, you know, he's like, well, you know, I'm a, a faculty member here. I'm like, really? 
Uh, and I mean, he did not look old enough to be a faculty. He was actually a tenured faculty member uh, in the Department of Mechanical Engineering at MIT. And he said, you know, <laughs> your idea, whatever. Um, but I'm actually working on something in 3D imaging uh, in my lab. And uh, some of my students have been saying we should commercialize it. But um, you know, I, I've been looking for a bunch of type A, overly aggressive, hyper MBAs, kind of like you, um, <laughs> to, to maybe help me do it. And so, uh, would you come by my lab, uh, you know, next Monday? And so that's what we did. And um, we dropped our idea, and we we joined with this professor, Doug Hart, um, who was was a kooky professor, uh, but to help him commercialize this 3D scanning technology. And what was interesting was, unlike a lot of businesses, we had something and we were looking for the right problem to solve. So we had a solution. And actually, it happens more often than you think. You know, you sort of have this great idea for technology, but you actually don't have the right application or use case for it. Um, so we spent all of second year of business school trying different use cases. We tried um, gaming. We tried uh, medical, we tried industrial inspections. We tried some markets, I shouldn't say, uh, since we're meerkatting in Paris. We thought about every market you could imagine with 3D scanning. And uh, we were about to give up. In fact, we had talked to a bunch of investors and other types about our idea. We were getting close to graduation. And my father, who's a bankruptcy attorney, by the way, if you're going for startup advice, you don't go to a bankruptcy attorney, but said, look, you know, the, the market has spoken. Like, you've been at this a while, um, go get a job. And around this time, my uh, friend said, you know, I know back a while ago you mentioned the technology could work for uh, dental and medical stuff. And my cousin founded Invisalign, you know, the clear braces company. And what they do is they take digital data from the mouth uh, using plaster molds and make the aligners with 3D printing. What if you could scan it in the mouth? Like, that'd be kind of cool. Why don't you talk to her? And so we did. And that sort of crystallized. It was totally random. And I, I think it's like one takeaway from, you know, so, sometimes you just got to be in the mix and some random stuff, serendipitous stuff happens. Um, in fact, the title of my blog, which you should all check out and read, it's excellent. Um, seren it's called Serendipitous Entrepreneurship, uh, and you can find it, or you can follow me on Twitter and find it. But um, it, uh, but but I really believe in that. And so uh, anyway, we ended up uh, getting very focused on the dental opportunity and focused the entire company on scanning teeth. And the idea was to replace. How many of you have had goop put in a mold and a model made of your teeth? Raise your hand. Okay. So there's evidence that your ancestors. Um, the Egyptians, when they were making pyramids, were using the same technology. So we figured it was about time to disrupt the dental impression. Uh, and that's, and it, literally, our first slide was Bronte's Technologies, No More Goop. That was our tagline. Um, you can imagine it didn't, uh, took a while to get funded. Ultimately, so fast forwarding, we, we did get the business funded. Well, hold on, let's yeah, take a break sorry. for a second. Okay, so a I, I agree with you with the serendipity, but you had, you, you're taking, I think, for granted, a few key points there. Number yep. one being my cousin was the founder of Invisalign. <laughs> That's not just, you know, that doesn't, yeah. I don't, anyone else have those kinds of cousins in here? No, Although no, it wasn't my cousin. This was a friend, oh, a friend who came up to me and actually made the introduction, okay. which I know doesn't happen. Well, all the my, time. my point here is more so as a takeaway for people here. Yeah who aren't at MIT with professors giving them ideas, who have a cousin's friend who's the founder of Invisalign, how might they create that I, I think the point is, like, 
the best ideas and the connections can come from anywhere. And I just think, you know, it's the idea of just being open to it and going to events like this. It doesn't happen if you sit in your home. By the way, every one of my colleagues was out doing the traditional job circuit. And we were out networking and going to places and trying to figure out what to do with this. And I, honestly, I think it was less about being at MIT or in Boston and more about just we, w we, were, we would turn over any card, anyone who would talk to us. Uh, we spoke to. Yeah, I think that's a very important distinction while we try to encourage people to talk to their neighbors here. W so tell us about, you know, would you, first of all, would you have funded yourself, you know, knowing what you know today? Hell no. Okay. And why? It was fucking crazy. <laughs> Which parts? The whole thing. Besides you. I, we didn't know anything about dentistry. Um, we, uh, in fact, one of, we went to an investor pitch, which passed on us. By the way, we probably had 50 VCs pass on us. And uh, one of the guys said, which one of you are in dental school? And we laughed. And, <laughs> and he was like, no, seriously. We're like, dude, neither of us are in dental school. Like, we, you know, like, um, he's like, get out of my office. Um, and, uh, you know, I think it, uh, part of the beauty of it was it was so crazy. First of all, we were super naive, which sometimes is a benefit. Um, and also, it was an industry that just hadn't been disrupted with technology. I mean, if you think about how, you know, your dentist is probably very similar the way they practice to they were 20 years ago and, and years before that. Only now is technology really starting to come into it. Um, but no, I mean, it was, I, I give a lot of credit. In fact, our one of our investors was uh, a guy named Ted Dintersmith, who is a bit of an elder statesman in venture capital. And he said, you know, I've done well in my career, and what I'm looking for is things that are different, not a network security company, not this or that. He's like, I've been looking at tattoo companies. You're the closest. I haven't invested. You're, this is the closest thing to that that I've seen. So I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna join on, and that's how it happened. So let's talk about that, right? So you raised some capital. Um, tell us a little bit of the story, in particular, what happens with your burn rate, and and you know how close you came to to some trouble with that company. Yeah, I mean, like all these things. Uh, so first of all, because it was such a crazy bet, we got what's called a tranched financing, which sounds really complicated, but really it means they don't trust you enough to give you the whole thing. So you, we raised a round, but they gave half of it. Actually, they gave like 40% up front and then 60% based on milestones. Now, here's one of the problems with that, and maybe you guys could sort of guess what happens. The milestone was a, a, a working device. So working device became, so fast forward a year, we're working hard, you know, hiring a few people. We have like an eight or nine person team and they come in for the demo. And I was always the patient out of fear that if we shocked someone or did anything, like at least it should be one of the founders. So I was always patient zero. So I'm laying back, the device is in my mouth um, and it had three CMOS sensors and a hundred LED, uh, LED ring lights. So it was extremely hot. It's in my mouth. Um, so the way we figured out to keep it cool was uh, you had to run water around it because water is often the best way to cool. And the way to build a device to circulate water is to take a igloo cooler, fill it with cold water, put a fish tank pump in it, have a clear tubing around the device and circulate the water back. And that's exactly what we did, obviously, right? So this thing is going on. Water's dripping all over the place. The thing is, the thing is hot as hell. Uh, and I got my mouth open, and the thing's going in there. And uh, you can bear, like on the screen, there's like dots. And we're like, see, teeth, it works. <laughs> we put it down, put it down, oops, sorry, put it down. Um, and the investor's like, like, you know, are you guys on crack? Like, what do you mean it works? We're like, what? Like, the point wasn't like a ship, but we're, you know, this wasn't like ready to ship. This is proof of function. So, as you can imagine, this became a great debate. Should we get the rest of the money? And, um, 
we actually had a technology auditor who, who knew they existed. By the way, there's auditors for everything. Um, a technology auditor had to come in and assess whether it was sort of like a neutral body to determine whether or not we actually completed what we did. And I mean, we, we hemmed and hawed and we continued to improve on the fish tank workflow, but um, uh, it would take another almost two years before the product came out, but they did finally come in with the money, uh, but it wasn't easy. And so um, how long, how long did that money last you? And did you ever get close to the brink of running out of it? Um, you know the the uh, the hard the hard part about hardware. Uh, actually, I, we ha hired a head of hardware finally because we knew what we didn't know. And he said, you know, there's a reason it's called hardware. And we went, ha 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 ha, you're funny. And then we realized he was so right. Like hardware is hard and it's very expensive. And you know, unlike software, if you make a mistake in software, you can quickly change it and kind of see see what the results are. The cycles are slow in hardware, um, and you have a lot more. Uh, a lot more variables that can go wrong. You, you know, you might make it work once right, and then the second time doesn't function like the first one. And it turns out there's some wire. Uh, probably some of you know a bit about hardware. Um, you know, we burned a lot of capital, and I think it took us twice as much capital and twice as much time. The investors still believed. I will tell you, and uh, if any of them are watching or see the cast, they they might or might not, uh, you know, uh, remember this. They lost. They were losing faith in us. Uh, I think they were encouraged, we did things like get verbal purchase orders. So we kept, we tried to keep them in the game by showing them that the market existed and showing more and more progress on market stuff. Um, but they definitely were starting to lose faith in our ability to execute this as it went on and on and on. And you know, it got better, but it took, it took a long time. And actually, one of the things I'll say is we, um, you know, in technology, you sometimes are forced to constrain the problem, right? You know, you your goal is to build the flying car, um, but you realize like that's going to be hard. So how how do you make it? How do you constrain it? Or you know, pick your product. Um, we found we have to powder the teeth before we scanned when we first launched the product. We had always said you you wouldn't have to do anything to the teeth. You just stick the thing in and take you know a picture for a minute or two. It turned out that this the flats of the teeth, this part right here. The occlusal, is anyone a dentist? No, I forget. The uh, buckle surfaces are flat, and the camera would pick up texture. And the way to get the resolution we needed was to spray titanium dioxide on the teeth. It's totally inert. It's in toothpaste and deodorant. But that was a big compromise. And by the way, the investors were like, what the hell? Like, we thought this was going to be. And But that's also what happens in these startups is like you start realizing, well, we can develop for two more years, or we can go to market with this. And by the way, that product even today, 10 years after the launch of the product, they're still, it's not as heavy, they're, there's a quick scan, but a spray, they're still spraying powder on the teeth. And they've, been, they've sold tens of thousands of units. Remind people, by the way, what year was this that this all went down? Uh, we started the company in 2003. The product launched the market in 2006. It's now marketed, so we sold the company in 2010 to 3M, and they, they, they um, not my branding, they call it the True Deaf Scanner, True Deaf. Scanner, yeah. It was originally D called DEF, -E not death, not death. <laughs> no, no, that was the first version. Um, the the uh, no, fish tank, <laughs> right? The fish tank version. Actually, when we sold the company, they called it the Lava Chairside Oral Scanner. I kid you not. For three or four years. This is why I am always optimistic about startups because big companies name things like Chairside Oral Scanner because that's what marketing departments do. Um. What and and I so what did your father before the sale? Were you losing faith in your likely optimistic bankruptcy attorney father? My dad, was, my dad talks about it. My guy, 
This is crazy. Um, no, I, I think, um, you know, I think the, the cool thing about hardware was it was very real uh, and there was something physical you could see. Um, and I could bring people in the office. We actually built a mini operatory with a dental chair. And I also think like, um, it's sort of like what you're saying about speech. I also think it's true about the perception of the office and all these things play a role into, does it feel like the company has momentum? Is it feel polished? And I think we worked really hard to make it feel like we were building something real. So, you know, we bought a used dental chair on eBay. We bought a used light. Like we really, and we brought in dentists and a lot of them were like, this is great. Like it was extremely technique sensitive. Like you literally, you know, like our guys were so good at it. They would go like, shh, shh, and then a dentist would come in and they'd be like taking them 10 minutes to do it, you know, but we, we really worked at showing what it could be. I think one of the other lessons learned is um, entrepreneurs really do need to sell 12 months ahead. They can't sell three years ahead. So it's sort of this fine balance. I like to say, um, eyes way up to the sky, feet firmly planted on the ground. I, I think it's actually a great way to think about your job as an entrepreneur is sort of always be sort of selling and you know envisioning the future, but not kidding yourself that like, you know, the flying car is coming out tomorrow. And, and, and it's easier said than done, but I, but I think it's sort of an important lesson. So you, you, you talked about this a little bit with how startups can pitch to you and being memorable. Yeah. So I want to I make a, a parallel there, right? So what, what's an effective way that when you hear pitch presentations that uh, resonates best with you now? So the first thing they do is follow me on Twitter, at MicahJ1. Um, uh, great no, handle. Great handle. Uh, yeah, sorry, I couldn't, you know. Um, but uh, I, I do, I, I, I'm being facetious partially because uh, I like getting Twitter followers and I'm superficial that way, but also because I do think it's helpful when people have come in and actually have read my bio or, you know, can, like that few seconds of chit-chat actually matters. Like, you know, you think about pitching. Uh, pitching is more like an interview for a job uh, than it is what you think a pitch of a business. The business happens to be the content that we're going to be talking about, but actually it's more like an interview because the assessment is, do I believe you are going to deliver this business or do what you say you're going to do? And do you believe me as an investor will be a good partner in that? That is much more about the human stuff than it is about the business itself. The business is going to change. Things are going to happen. Um, so I think people who do that, keep that in mind, do a good job, really connect as a human. Um, I do think, like everybody, I'm a sucker for a good presentation. Uh, when we met Kelsey from Invisalign, she told me that the way she raised money was she did the whole pitch. And then at the end of the pitch, she opened her mouth and she put these aligners on the table. She said, I bet you didn't know I was wearing braces. And they basically were like, oh my God, we got to fund this thing. And I, I, I think... You know, whether you do something as elaborate as that or, but I, I think really capture the imagination, really find a way to make the point um, that, that is memorable. You know, I take probably 10 or 15 pitches a week. I'm going to remember one or two in, on the weekend. You know, I'm going to remember them all, but which are the one or two that I'm going to go home and say to my wife or a friend, like, dude, I saw the cool, you know, th like it's just, and that happens almost, you know, every week or every couple weeks, but you want to be that one. Um, in fact, there's a VC on the West Coast who says, the only the one I remember is the one I follow up on. That that's actually how I decide. I, I don't sort of believe in that. That's an extreme. But I think it's a useful like um, thing to think about as, a, as someone who's pitching a business. So what's something someone's done recently that you didn't like? I, I, I think when people become argumentative and defensive without, it, they, they, they may be right. 
Um, but I think it's how they handle the questions. Um, you know, sometimes people will say like, you know, get real defensive and be, you know, sort of be like, that's not how it works or, and I, a lot of it is in the delivery, but I do think, um, you have to be able, you, you know, uh, you have to be able to make your case without coming off like, um, it's a conflict. And I think inherent in that hour or 45 minute meeting, there's going to be conflict. That's part of debate. The question is, how do you handle it? And I think, uh, I learn a lot from how people handle the debate. So, you know, you mentioned to me, I think something that Josh uh, Koppelman had said about the baking the world's greatest cookie, right? And so maybe first you could share what, what that means and then also how people can be respectfully, respectfully defensive of their vision if they think you're trying to steer them in a different direction. Yeah, and I, I, the story that I shared was uh, one, one, uh, one very well-known investor said to me once, you know, one of the, as I was moving into venture, having done literally most of my, my entire career in startup land, uh, he said, you're gonna get a pitch and the, investor, and the, and the company's gonna come in and they're gonna say, we've got this great cookie company. These are the best cookies you've ever had. We use this special chocolate and this amazing recipe and we just know how to like make the best, try one, it's the best cookies. And you sit there and you say, you know, yeah, you're, you're a great entrepreneur and you've got it going on, but it's really gonna be brownies. Brownies are where the business is at. And you kind of go back to your partners, you say there's a great brownie business that we should invest in. And slowly you start to sort of steer the entrepreneur in a way that you think the business should go and you forget that you're not the entrepreneur. And I think um, one of my lessons learned and one of the challenges for guys like me who are operators now investors is we so badly want, we, it's not just a control thing, it's a, uh, it's a passion thing. And I think um, sometimes there's some tension around uh, you know, respecting the fact that even if I think the business is right and the entrepreneur is saying left, in the end, it's the entrepreneur uh, whose business it is. And I've learned that, and I, and I still learn that. So um, why did you decide ultimately to go into venture? You know, obviously, you had a background as an operator. Um, you know, we, I, I'd worked on the venture side myself and talked about the frustration I felt in not being able to, uh, to operate some of those companies or get much more deeply involved. So I'm curious how you balance that and what drew you to, to venture. Yeah, uh, a couple thoughts there. One is... Um, I mean, how many of you are entrepreneurs or are working on a startup right now? So tell me if this visual describes your day, your hour, like good call, a bad call, right? Like your inbox, right? And so VC is a little more like this. And there's pros and cons. Like you start to get really addicted to this. I know it sounds crazy if you're running a company right now, but you actually miss this right, when, when you're not in it anymore. Um, but I don't miss this part, I miss this part. Um, and so that, that's how I think about the distinction. I mean, you've done it too, so I, I don't know if that resonates. But, um, but, but I think um, one of the reasons I moved to the venture side, I, I'd done three startups. Um, I, one was a big hole in the ground. We raised $25 million and it disappeared. We had a $100 million valuation on paper. My partner went to go buy a Saab. Then the Saab didn't get repoed, but he basically basically did. Um, so we went to zero. Uh, then Brontes, which was a good exit, and then a company that's still running called Sample Six in Boston. So we'll see. Um, so I, you know, like uh, I was ready for a change, and then it was to be in business with people I really trust. Like if I've learned nothing, it's work with people you trust and really like to work with, 
and Eric and David are guys who I had known for many, many years and got the opportunity to work with. Um, and it's intellectually very stimulating, uh, but I do miss the days of building something. Uh, yeah. Do you think you'll start something again? Um, anybody got any good ideas? I saw three good ones so far. Uh, we don't have Thai food here, but there was somebody drew yeah. back. You know, I, 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 probably not right away. I, I, I'm very committed to the fund for, you know, quite some time. Um, but I do, I, I, like I was saying before about serendipity, I think the stars sometimes align every now, you know, it doesn't happen often, but when it does, um, so I, I never say never. So what do you think you bring to the table that other VCs may not? Pink button downs. Um, uh, I, I think there is a, um, different um, way of being when you've actually built a business. And I think the, probably the best word is empathy. Um, I think I understand what it is like. I've pitched a lot of VCs. I've been turned down a lot. Um, I basically was told I, was, I would fail by a lot of people. I printed those emails and put them up, you know. So I know what it's like to be on the other side. I, I'm maybe that guy sometimes that people are like, that asshole. Um, but... Uh, but I also think that it, there's uh, benefit there. Um, but there's other good investors there. I, I, I think for whatever reason, uh, myself and my partners are among the first call entrepreneurs have when there's something going wrong, <laughs> which I don't know is always, but like, I, I think we're good sounding boards on uh, particularly the, the soft stuff. You know, I'm having trouble with my founder, with my co-founder, or um, I have this big decision and, and I can't, you know, I can't decide. And I think I shared with you, but you asked for some of the personal. So, but I remember when I was running Brontes, I went to the doctor. I told you this story, but you, you made me, um, you triggered the thought. Um, and the doctor said to me, you know, have you ever been diagnosed with high blood pressure? And I'm like, I'm like 29 years old, no. And you know, the doctor was like, I want you to put this thing on and check it, you know, in the morning, in the afternoon, at night, and write down the numbers. And I brought, and after a week I brought it and he said, you know, you're you have high blood pressure. And like man, my grandmother had had high blood pressure, but that, you know, but I was like, wow, I'm re I, I'm physically um being uh you know, um the startup is actually you know, affecting me physically. Um, and so, you know, I, 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 I realize that and I see it in our portfolio. I see, hopefully they're not getting sick, but I see the physical, um, you know, toll that it takes on people. Um, but I also get, you know, the excitement. And it's actually why a lot of people can only do startups for so long, for, for some period of their career. I, I'm, I'm certain you're not alone in that in the physical manifestation of the stress that it takes on, on people's body. I'm sure there's people here who, I mean, who, who can relate to that? Enough people. I mean, Alan Murabayashi was on this stage from Hot Jobs and now Photo Shelter talking about how Hot Jobs nearly literally killed him. So I think that's something that's very, very relevant. Yeah, uh, you, you read in the, in the news that the new CEO of, of United has a heart attack. And certainly, I'm sure there's a lot of it. But like, you know, and, and, you know, people talk about work-life balance. It's not so easy, right? Like, um, or, you know, many of us want to, like, be type A and, and perform. And, uh, and it's just not easy to do that balance. Yeah, I mean, I know for me, it doesn't, it's like wake up and you're on and go to sleep and maybe it's off. Maybe I dream about the idea, but there's no off. The one thing I would say, I, you know, I, I'm not building a company at the moment. I do think there's more awareness of the human side of uh, our psyche and how that impacts business. You know, um, 
it, it, I'll plug uh, Reboot, which is a podcast uh, by Jerry Colonna, who was Fred Wilson's partner uh, before USV at Flatiron, which was uh, a really legendary New York venture firm. And he left venture to, uh, I, th I, th I think he went to become, like he lived in a monastery and like went and, and went to learn uh, meditation from the gurus. And now he comes back and he coaches CEOs and others. Uh, and he has this great podcast called Reboot. Uh, and he's got a company called Reboot. Um, and I, so I think there's a little more, you know, if you download Headspace or one of these, there's a little more of an understanding that like, that it's healthy to, to you know, meditate or go to the gym or do what, do what you do. Um, so I want to talk a little bit more about being memorable in the pitch with software companies in particular. How can people be more memorable so that you, they are the one that you're thinking about on the weekend? That's a good question. Um, well, then I, if, if you're stumped, we can focus on Periscope because I'm pretty fascinated with that <laughs> one in particular. Um, okay, we'll talk about both. So I, I, I think with, I'll, I'll use Periscope as an example. I, I think the way in which they pitched the company was this. So we invested in Periscope. Uh, I think it's running right now. Hey, Kayvon, hope everything's going well. How's Twitter? Um, I think, uh, so here's how they pitched it. It was really interesting. The pitch was, it's the closest thing to teleportation. So you actually have to think about it for a while. And I thought it was like such a great, actually like I still have to think about it because like it's almost like, some of you may not even realize the reference, but like teleportation is, is this idea of like you can be somewhere else. Like, okay, it's real time video, like let's call it what it is. But it's so, you know, like imagine, uh, you know, I, I forgot what the examples were, but you know, imagine you are, um, you know, in the space station and watching, and, and you're there, you know, it's a live stream, or you want a tour of a campus and you can just sort of get it on demand. By the way, a lot of the initial business was based on people would propose ideas that they wanted to live stream. And then it was gonna be a marketplace and then people were going to make good on those proposals. So you could say, I wanna do, do a tour of the Stevens Institute of Technology campus at three o'clock on Tuesday. And someone would say, I'll do it for you. And then they would live stream it. And it actually has gone a slightly different direction, which is kind of like a lot of businesses, they tend to morph and pivot uh, to the point where, you know, it's, it's basically just, uh, you know, sort of a flow, a stream of, of live uh, video. And you can tell why Twitter bought them because of that. But really, so it was the pitch. The guys were, um, you know, young, hungry, had, had a, a, a small taste of success before. Um, but they had built mobile sites for colleges. Um, and when I first saw the beta, by the way, I saw the beta actually after we invest, to be fair, but uh, it was very addictive. Um, I actually used it quite a bit in the early days. And there were only like 100 or 200 of us on there. In some ways, it was kind of more fun because it was like just a couple hundred people. You weren't worried about, uh, you know, random people watching. But I remember I periscoped my friend's wedding from California and other friends who weren't there got to watch it. And I was like, this is cool. So I, I would have missed this deal, I'm sure. I, I would not have written the check. But because what I don't follow is live streaming technology existed. So what in particular about Periscope? I mean, your clarification on the marketplace is intriguing. So maybe maybe that would have helped. But live streaming yourself, Google has or Yahoo, YouTube has it built into the platform today. But you know, when, when Google started, Yahoo was a perfectly good search engine. And I, by the way, I was an investor. I would have been like, what, who the hell needs another search engine? Like Yahoo's perfectly good. When Kayak got started, you know, uh, you know, Travelocity was pretty damn good. I, I think it's, 
it's it's striking. It, it's a moment in time, and I think the the view was the view I had was we finally had the ability to stream in our pockets good quality video uh, anytime anywhere. And I, I, but I don't think that was possible even two years prior. You're absolutely right. From Twitch to you now, we're actually an investor in you now. Um, there have been there there and, and, and a lot of failed startups in 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 broadcast video, but it's moment in time. It's knowing when the contextual factors. And by the way, it's so easy in hindsight, but it's knowing when those contextual factors line up. Because um, most businesses have been tried, but it's like why at this moment? And by the way, the the best entrepreneurs are able to 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 explain why this moment in time is the moment for their startup to exist. There's actually there's two questions that matter: why this moment and why you. That's really all that matters. So why am I uniquely qualified to do this business? Um, I'll give you a two-second anecdote if I can. Yeah. Sky uh, Drew McElroy, uh, a native New Jersey resident, uh, came to the office and he said, "I grew up um, in the freight brokerage business, like yawn freight brokerage, like what, what's that?" And he said, "You know, I graduated from college." And uh, soon thereafter, unfortunately, my father passed away, and he ran the business with my with uh, my mother. And we have a room, uh, we have an office of call, you know, people on the phone who basically match truckloads with trucks. That's what freight brokers do. By the way, it's a huge business. And he said, so I, I helped my mother run her business for like a bunch of years after uh, my father passed away. And I'm sitting there and, I'm, and then I see Uber rise up and I see all this technology. I'm like, why are we on the phone all the time? Hunting down the truckers, figuring out what load, how much is away, how much, it, like why isn't there any technology? And so he matched himself up with, don't tell your previous guest, but a former guilt, uh, you know, senior engineer. And they started working on trucking technology. And honestly, I, you know, I had no thesis. I had no interest in trucking technology. You know, it wasn't on my mind. Um, but it was, it answered those two questions, right? One, you know, actually I asked him, like, do the truckers have smartphones? He said, not only do the truckers have smartphones, they have Wi-Fi in their cabins so that they can watch Netflix while they're driving. Really fucking scary. Um, so, you know, um, if you're ever driving by a truck, check out what they're watching and stay far behind. Um, and two, uh, you know, they're finally ready for a dot. And, and I'm, and I'm, I'm probably the only 30 or I think he was 30 maybe at the time. I'm the only, you know, person thinking about this problem. Maybe not the only person. There's certainly come that's, but like there aren't like armies and armies of engineers thinking about how to solve freight brokerage. And, you know, we'll see how the company does. It's early. They just raised some capital, but um, I like that combination. I'd take that bet. Fair point. So um, I wasn't paying attention with my next question. I was so intrigued with the freight company. What's it called, by the way, the freight company? It's called Transfix. Transfix. Yeah. So Should we do a Pomodoro? Not yet. Not yet. <laughs> yeah, we probably need to. <laughs> um, so the, the process that someone might go through to, to ultimately get a check from Founder Collective, let's say they meet you at a place like this, or they get an introduction through someone that they know. What should they expect from, you know, if they can get a meeting, for one, how might, what increases their chances of getting that meeting? And then what increases their chances of getting the next one? Uh, okay, so we, you know, we're seed funds, so we look at everything. Um, so any of you that want to uh, send in a business plan, um, there are folks here who I've met with, actually. Um, so uh, you, you can send us your business plan. We, we have, um, Myself. You mean uh, cold, like via the website? 
Do you look at those? You, we do. We look at everything. So my email is Micah at Founder Collective. You can see me on Twitter. Um, we do have a team of associates who review some of the stuff that comes inbound. Uh, and, you know, we'll take calls sometimes or emails or review and decide it's not a fit. But we look at everything. Um, and then what to expect is if we do end up meeting, um, you know, it's as I described. It's really it's like an interview or a discussion and it's uh, fairly casual. And, and again, what we're assessing is, you know, does it fit in the dimensions? We're going to do 20 deals a year. I'm going to do, let's say six to eight, right? And I take 10 or 50, you know, 10 or so a week. So you can do the math. It's a low probability, but what we do them and, you know, we've found opportunities, uh, you know, the, the, the opportunity with Drew and Transfix came in through someone I don't know very well. And so, you know, opportunities exist in the least likely of places. I firmly believe that. Um, so everybody has that opportunity. I mean, I was bet on as an entrepreneur with a technology I didn't know about in a market I didn't know about. Um, but then I think it's really making the case. And I think hopefully having hearing those two questions is helpful because I think really, at least for me, other, other investors may want to hear something else. Um, but we're not thesis driven. Um, you know, we just, we just did an investment that I'm excited about called Andela. Andela is... By the way, when I first heard it, I, I thought it was a nonprofit. And Della is basically saying that the biggest opportunity for labor, for talent, uh, in terms of uh, a labor arbitrage or labor rates is now Africa. And that there's amazing talent in Africa. Um, and these guys at Andela have basically built uh, an education uh, you know, facility um, on the continent that train software engineering and all sorts of other skills um, to people that apply to the school. And by the way, they're getting more applications than like any university. There's huge waiting lists in Africa, many of the countries to get, uh, to get into schools. And these guys are getting placed at Google and Microsoft and all these great companies. And we, you know, um, my partner is from South Africa, so it gave us some, but like, you know, I don't, I don't think there was any thesis in the world to really, and it's this kind of stuff that's inspiring. It feels like it's doing good in the world. And um, again, like, you know, it's, it's as different as the trucking thing. You tweeted, I think, uh, 10 days ago or so about driverless cars will grow the GDP. I think you said about L.A. But I, I was sitting in a car in L.A. <laughs> really pissed off. Um, so, yes. So... But I was wondering if there was some, if you were just annoyed, or was there actually some something behind that thesis? Well, I, I, I think first of all, I'm sick of reading it like driverless cars bad. I think some some people are saying it's bad. I also think the argument I was trying to make is that I actually think it'll make uh, it'll increase efficiency because you would think that if the distances between cars and, you know, the problem with traffic, I'm not an expert in this, but is, you know, one person makes a mistake in the tunnel and then, like, traffic is blocked for an hour or, you know, you know who decides to create this problems. Is New Jersey. We know you know where, right. Um, so I'm told. Um, and, uh, but, but, but I, I think if it were left to computer, uh, it actually could, you know, you, you could space out cars properly. And so as I'm sitting in L.A. and everybody's in their car sitting on the 405, because the 405, for some reason, um, not moving, doing nothing. Oh, and, and that's the other problem. When you're driving, you're actually not that productive. You know, it's interesting. You actually used to be more productive when everything was over the phone. Now that no one wants to talk on the phone, you're actually less, either you're texting illegally or, or you're not productive. And so, I, you know, I was sitting there seeing, like, this mass number of cars. Or you're watching Netflix. I was watching Netflix from the dude, the dude in front of me in the, you know, 16-wheeler. Um, 
but like I, I was shocked it just you know like it is I mean it's it's such a drain on productivity uh, and you really see it in LA you see it here too but um you, the, you talked about company, you know, startups that are able to create new markets, where Uber was a, is an example of that, right? They grew the market in San Francisco. That's right. Um, the taxi market by, I forget the number now, three times or something, right? Um, how many of those do you come across? And how many of those do you believe? Yeah, I mean, I think in the ones where markets are made, the founders don't even know that they could make the market. Did uh, Travis, I mean, did they expect that? I don't Uber? think so. I mean, I, I, I didn't hear the initial pitch. My partner, Eric, did. But... Um, I, I think they were really focused on the black car market. I, I, I think UberX was like a long-term vision. Um, and I think really what's been amazing is how UberX and, and Lyft and have kind of really changed the way trans and, and by the way, Via. And I mean, it's amazing how many ways transportation has been sliced. I don't think anyone saw that coming. I, honestly, I think if you pulled the best venture capitalists in the country, in the world before, like that was not a category anybody was watching. Um, but uh, but but I think a lot of you know MakerBot, which was this 3D printer in Brooklyn. Uh, you, you know, I had worked with 3D printers at Brontes to make prototypes for years. I thought the parts were ugly, the systems were slow, they were expensive. There was no way I thought that mass consumer adoption. But you know, Bree and their company were able to kind of almost tap in and almost create a maker movement where all these people who were kind of tinkerers, which really wasn't a market, sort of like bought this system and started making 3D prints. So. I think that's also like the special sauce that entrepreneurs, they, you know, it's sort of like a little bit of a vision for the future, but it's a way to bring something to, to a market um, that people didn't even know they needed. Uh, and, you know, start, I mean, Facebook made a market, right? Like there really was, I, mean, I know it sounds kind of trite, but like, you know, it was sort of this new thing. Well, arguably in MySpace, so maybe that's a bad example, but, you know. Uh, maybe well, that whole timing thing is sort of relevant, right? You're, in your two questions, why now? Yeah, we, we, we've had you know, Andrew Weinrich of Six Degrees, the very first social network, but totally. the timing was just off. And, and by the way, I didn't go into the details of Handshake, my first company. We were doing online scheduling of house cleaners, carpet cleaners, cars. We were doing all that stuff. We, we had this. What part, year? This was 1998. We had this very, it's hard to explain, it's complicated tech called faxing. Um, <laughs> and we would, we, would, we would fax the job to the business and we would take uh, the job scheduled online. And so, and literally we, we, then we had a call center because people wouldn't answer their facts. But they would, the way it was supposed to work was you would put in an order on our website, handshake.com. The small business would get a fax. They would write down 9 a.m.s open, 3 a.m. p.m. And they would fax it back. And then we would put it in the computer and then they would, you know, get the order fax back. And this is how we, that's why the business isn't around anymore. My very first company did this in 1999 was a competitor to Seamless before Seamless existed, where we had the same high-tech fax technology, except I had a very fancy Motorola pager that would tell me when the faxes failed, and I could call in the food order, which was really awesome on like a Saturday night when I'm out. So I, I'm with you on the high-tech faxing. We hope you enjoyed the episode today. Make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss out on our future episodes. From the team at New Jersey Tech Meetup, we hope you're having a great day, and we look forward to spending more time with you in the future. 